You're listening to The Unifying Call, where we share the voices of our hospital, clinicians and leaders. These are stories to inspire kindness and courage in the face of COVID, presented by Western Health. I'm Cathy Somerville. In mid-March 2020, I spoke with the Director of Western Health's Infectious Diseases Unit. Dr Marion Kaner joined Western Health in October 2019, returning to Australia after almost two decades in the United States, where she became a renowned expert in healthcare-associated infections. Based in Tennessee, she also spent a number of years working for the United States Center for Disease Control in the Epidemiological Intelligence Service, often referred to as the disease detectives. Our discussion covered Marion's experience at the front lines of the SARS outbreak, but we started on the lighter note of whether Marion has a pet now she's back in Australia. Oh, I don't have any pet because that would be cruelty because I'm never home to go and give a pet company. So <laughs> It would be a very lonely dog or cat. It would be a very lonely dog or cat. So when I was in Nashville, I had an elderly neighbour who was in her early 90s who had a husky and she had bad hip pain. And so I got the best of all worlds because I got to walk her dog, I got to love with the dog, and I didn't have to worry about the dog being lonely because the dog had company all during the day and got fed and I didn't have any vet bills. It was perfect. (laughs) I bet you miss that dog right now. Yes, I do. (laughs) It's such a great stress relief, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So only, what, two months after you arrived, really, the outbreak of the coronavirus commenced on New Year's Eve. So let's just cover a little bit of that time span from when you first became aware of it to where we are now. So I first became of it because of a notice about it under ProMed, that is a listserv that I subscribe to, which looks at emerging infections. So there was this description of this unusual pneumonia associated with a seafood market, which made me raise my eyebrows because I'm thinking I'm not aware of any seafoods causing a respiratory illness. I wonder if there is other wildlife sold there as well. And that indeed ended up being the case. And my very first thoughts were, I hope that this is not the re-emergence of SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, which had emerged back in 2002. And I really was very much involved in the response to SARS in 2003 when I worked in Tennessee. So I think for our staff, it would be nice to let them know some of your background so that they can have an understanding of I guess the skill level and expertise you bring to dealing with this issue. Perhaps you could just tell us your involvement with the SARS outbreak. So as a background, I'm an adult infectious diseases physician and I did my training here in Australia. I got a master's in public health at Monash University and then I went over to the United States to work at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as an Epidemic Intelligence Service Officer or EIS Officer, also known as the Disease Detectives. And there I was assigned to the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion or the Hospital Infections Program. So to try and prevent 
infections in healthcare settings and to do outbreak investigations. How did you get into a role like that? I imagine it's pretty popular for a lot of doctors. EIS is an extraordinarily popular program. They take very few international staff. They, in general, don't take internationals for the first time round. There's about 400 applicants for eight spaces. So very, very competitive. And in general, if you come from a developed country, they don't take you the first time round. They want to be sure that you are really committed and persevere and apply the second time round. If you were from a developing country, they do take you the first time around. But from a developed country, they don't, especially if it is a similar program, which there is here it's the Master of Applied Epidemiology, which is run out of ANU. But it did not have, at that time, an emphasis on healthcare-associated infections or infection control. And I was really wanting to learn from the absolute best. So... I wanted to work for Bill Jarvis, who led more outbreak investigations in healthcare settings than anyone else in the world. And absolutely brilliant man, fantastic mentor, and that's who I wanted to work for. And so with the 400 applicants, am I right that you had a very good set of marks behind you? What was it that got you across the line? Was it more than that? Was it interviews? What was it in particular? Um, I did pretty well at school, both at school and at university. I had good references. I interviewed well. In fact, I came back the following year to a conference as my little reward because I didn't get in the first time round. And so I was a surrogate and I dropped by CDC and I asked the director of the program, I said, look, I'm still really interested. It's really expensive to fly out here. Is there any way we could do the interviews again here so I don't have to come out a second time? And he said, no, you don't want to do the interviews again. You couldn't get any higher marks. (laughs) Um, But he said, you need to go and speak to somebody who's really senior. So why don't you go and do an additional interview at the time? And I interviewed with Bill Jarvis at that time. So How does one become an infectious diseases specialist? Does it require you to have a bit of a detective sense about you? Would you have liked to have been a detective? When I was a little girl, I loved detective stories and things like that. So I've always had this curiosity about it. Like I always liked asking questions. So I was the kid who always asked why. I always wanted, I loved science and mysteries and solving mysteries and detective novels And then really wanted to be a doctor from a young age. Like I really wanted to go into medicine when I was nine years old. Then I just loved the field of infectious diseases. And infectious diseases is something that, is it a very uh, unusual specialty to take? Do a lot of people want to go into that field? In Australia, lots of, and especially in Melbourne, lots of people like to go into infectious diseases. It's quite different in the United States. They actually have difficulty filling their program over there. So, but in Australia, it's very popular. I actually initially wanted to do neurology because, again, I like the detective game and I knew my neuroanatomy really well. 
And at that time, there were no good MRI scans. And so you had to go and do careful neurological examinations and work out where the problem was. The fun was taken away when they had good MRI scans and anybody could go and say, oh, that's where the problem is. And I've always loved infectious diseases. I did a rotation at Fairfield Hospital as a second-year resident at that time wanting to do neurology and then was converted by doing my rotation there and shocked everybody who thought that I was going to be a neurologist. Actually, just recently we had our 30-year reunion from my medical school class and there were so many people who still thought that I did neuro that I did neurology because I basically had my postdoc sorted out at that time in neurology and I just completely switched over to infectious diseases. Perhaps in the future you'll still do neurology. I got a chance to really use my whole skill set in the fungal meningitis outbreak of 2012. That's right. So I was wanting to talk about that in more detail in a little while. But first of all, I just wanted to ask if you could just tell us a little about with the SARS outbreak, how was that for you? What did you do? How did you first become involved? What is your first memory of the SARS outbreak? My very first memory was getting a visit when I was in Tennessee. I had just started in Tennessee January 22nd in 2003. And I remember getting an alert from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, an alert about this new syndrome of severe pneumonia that appeared to be associated with Hong Kong. And I was on call on the weekend. I think I cannot recall the exact day of the week it was, but I remember I was on call on that weekend straight after that alert. And there were three potential cases in one of our hospitals in Tennessee, in Chattanooga. So I became the point person on that. I was the only infectious diseases physician at the Tennessee Department of Health at the time. So we investigated these patients. We took samples. They ended up not actually having SARS But I then was involved in educating all the clinicians across the state, all the infection preventionists, and teaching them on how to go and protect themselves and making sure that we wouldn't miss any cases. So we had one probable case, but which was never laboratory confirmed. But I did a lot of work in preparing around it and working on data management so that we wouldn't miss any contacts. We didn't want to have another Toronto in Tennessee. In Toronto, they had the first wave, thought that they got rid of it, and then there was one patient who fell through the cracks who then sparked the second wave of the outbreak. And I was really determined that that was not going to happen on my watch in Tennessee. And so I actually became really interested in data management and in informatics. And so actually that's resulted in a significant pathway in my career in terms of making sure that we could manage lots and lots and lots and lots of contacts and have nobody fall through the cracks. And am I right that in America, or in the United States at least, there were no deaths of healthcare workers from SARS? Is that correct? There were no healthcare workers infected with SARS. We just had travellers 
who had potential exposures outside. So travellers in China and I remember our particular probable case had exposure in Toronto. Can you tell us what happened in Toronto? So in Toronto, they were very, very unfortunate in terms of the very first presentation of a patient with SARS was, and I'm not, I think it was the son, could have been a grandson, was the, I think it was the son who presented to the emergency department and he himself had not traveled, but his mother had come from the hotel metropole. And so even if you had asked him, had you traveled overseas, he would have said no. And at that time, when he presented to the emergency department, the alarm had not been sounded. And so nobody even asked that question. What was the Hotel Metropole? The Hotel Metropole was ground zero for the outbreak in SARS in Hong Kong. There was a professor from Guangdong province in mainland China who went to a conference in Hong Kong, he was ill, he knew he was ill, he still traveled, and then he managed to infect, and I would have to double check, but I think it's something like 16 people. I think they were all on his floor. Would you say he was a super spreader or was it more the nature of that virus? I think it was a super spreader event, and that then seeded multiple other countries, so including Singapore, as well as Vietnam, as well as Toronto, so very large distribution. So in Toronto, I understand there were some healthcare workers who died? Yes, had a very significant toll on healthcare workers. And I think, and some of those healthcare workers are still scarred, emotionally scarred, from having had to see some of their co-workers be extraordinarily ill and then some of them succumbing to SARS. So it was an absolutely horrendous situation for those and they had to keep on going while, you know, looking after other patients while they saw their co-workers succumb. And we learnt a lot from that experience. We learnt the very critical importance of how to use personal protective equipment, in particular with what we call aerosol-generating procedures. And you're probably putting into place a lot of the lessons you learned from that. Would that be right? Is that what your plan is now? There are a lot of lessons learned and characteristics of SARS that belongs to the same group. It's This is SARS-CoV-2, so this is the second variation. It, it's actually genetically very, very similar to SARS coronavirus, I guess, number one, which caused SARS at that time. And so hearing the clinical presentations, seeing the data coming out, it just had so many, just so many reminiscences of what that outbreak looked like. So many of the clinical features were the same. Now, this is not SARS. The severe end of the spectrum is fairly similar clinically in how patients present, but this SARS virus, SARS-CoVid 
19, it has a large number of people who actually only have mild disease versus back in 2003, we really only saw severe disease. We also had a longer incubation period at that time. And we didn't have any real suggestion of a potential for spread when somebody did not yet have symptoms. And so those characteristics allowed public health to use early identification and isolation and contact tracing and quarantine to really control the outbreak. Given the differences between that outbreak and this one, what are some of the big considerations for you in advising us here of what we need to do? I have always had an enormous commitment to staff safety and the lessons from SARS back in 2003 showed if you don't pay attention to the appropriate use of personal protective equipment, aerosol generating procedures, you can have absolutely devastating consequences. And so that really forms one of the cornerstones here. You know, I keep on saying staff safety is my number one priority. My number two priority is to provide the best possible care that we can to our patients, both those infected with COVID-19, if we receive any, and other patients who are not infected. And what do you think is the main message you want staff to hear about your support for them? I really hope that I can demystify this illness and that I can be seen as a source of truth and information. I will not falsely reassure people. I am so committed to transparency, to letting you know exactly what is going on. I will let you know what I know and I will let you know what I don't know. With this, any emerging disease, there's an enormous amount of uncertainty. We have to base our guidelines and recommendations on certain assumptions. And so I'm very clear when I talk as to what are the assumptions we are making when we make a certain recommendation, because we are learning about this virus every day, every hour, and some of our assumptions were not correct. And so those then have downstream effects in terms of we have to then maybe modify our guidelines or recommendations. So that's, I think, is important. The other thing I have really learned through all my work at CDC is that these are really rapidly evolving situations and we have to be aware of that and as frustrating as it can be that, oh my goodness, the screening criteria have changed again, over case definition has changed again. It is because we are incorporating all the latest information and knowledge to ensure that we keep everybody safe and we can provide the best possible care. But it, I completely understand that people are frustrated. Oh my goodness, it's changed again. It's not because we can't make up our minds. It's just because we're really trying to incorporate the best possible information. And so I've also learned that it's really important to go and say, date everything, date stamp everything because things are changing. And so you can't go by what the heading is. You have to be able to tell everybody, no, check in the footnote, what is the date that this is current? So we have version control of appropriate documents. 
I, I understand you have certain beliefs in the importance of certain communication principles in the face of an outbreak like this. What are some of those principles? I think to acknowledge the appropriate fear of the unknown that people have. It is frightening for people. Not knowing something is frightening. And, you know, I get frightened too. <laughs> and, you know, I share uncertainty as well, being very clear that you're not denigrating them, that you understand that and that you can empathize with that is really important. Being very careful to not reassure if it is not indicated is really, really important. Honesty is so crucial. I always say my currency is trust. If people don't trust me, they're not going to believe me. Or when I ask them to do things, which may be complicated or difficult to go and do. So honest, clear communication is really important. Dr. Julie Gerberding, one of the former directors of CDC, always used to go and say, be first, be right, be credible. So being very sure that the information that I'm acting upon or communicating is the truth. So being very careful to not necessarily be swayed by things on social media. There are so many fake videos and things like that. So you have to be very careful about having a skepticism surrounding those and really ensuring that we get the data from the best possible reliable sources. I believe you also have a view that kindness is really important in these circumstances. Absolutely. These are really, really stressful times. And so it's important that we support each other in the work family, that we support our extended families, that we support our neighbours. And I think we saw a tremendous example with the bushfires, how the whole community just really came together. And I really hope to see that we see a similar coming together of the community in combating this coronavirus. You also talk about the need to share the risk and ask people to share the risk with you. Can you talk about that a little? Well, probably the most recent example of this was the recent bushfires where in order to combat that, we had the fireys going into danger. They knew what they were doing, but they were doing it because they wanted to go and protect the rest of the population. And so in a similar way here, healthcare workers will be in contact with patients who will have coronavirus and there is a risk there, but we're going to do absolutely, totally everything in our power to make sure that we reduce that risk as much as we possibly can. And that includes making sure that we do early identification of anybody because the unrecognized case is the one that is the most likely to spread. So getting their proper travel history is critically important getting um, the history of whether they've been in contact with anybody is critically important, isolating that person is important, and then ensuring that people wear the appropriate personal protective equipment, they know how to put it on, they know how to take it off. The taking off in particular is really important. 
practicing of hand hygiene is really, really important. Soap and water works really well. Alcohol hand wrap also works really well. This has been The Unifying Call, presented by Western Health. Please share this episode with five colleagues so these stories can reach and inspire more people. For more information, follow the links in the podcast description.